Welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you want to support the podcast, please head over to the Lou Perez community on locals.com. TheLouPerez.locals.com. And I have a very special guest with me today. Lionel Shriver is a novelist, a journalist. Absolutely love her work. And you guys should definitely be following her on, uh, on all of her adventures. So Lionel, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I wish I could join you more intimately, but uh, this will certainly do. Right on. Um, so something that that I that I realized, um, uh, I follow your work in The Spectator, and uh, uh, in order to view your work, you uh, oftentimes have to uh, get behind a paywall. And for me, I was like, you know what? I like Lionel's work so much. I'm going to get behind the paywall. I'm going to actually put my credit card out there and I get to read uh, reader stuff. What I found- That's what the paywall is for. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> what, what I found on the other end of that is I had a piece published in the Wall Street Journal called How I Became a Far-Right Radical. And I sent it out to all my friends and all my friends were really excited for me. Um, but I can't tell you the amount of them who are like, Lou, I read the, the first three paragraphs, great work, but it's behind a paywall. So do you think you could email me the full article? Um, and these are friends with money. Some of these people like make really good salaries. And I was, uh, I just found it interesting that oftentimes the same people who are complaining about the state of uh, journalism uh, and media aren't willing to you know, dip into their pockets to help support. Well, that whole business of, uh papers being free uh, right. got in everyone's head, not just broke graduate students, but adults with jobs, as you point out. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I subscribe to a ridiculous number of newspapers and I, and I don't think that strategy is realistic, uh, but uh, I don't begrudge that spending. I consider it a kind of charity mm -hmm. donation. And um, and after all, I make a lot more money off of newspapers than they cost me in return. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, have you heard about uh, this thing the Rolling, uh, Rolling Stone magazine is doing? It's uh, something like, I think they're calling it the council, where they're looking for thought leaders who are willing to pay them $2,000 a year to possibly publish their work. Have you heard about that? Okay, no, that's where I draw the line. Yeah. Uh, that's sick. I mean, it's bad enough that freelancers uh, have been paid less and less and less. It's really hard now to make a living as a freelancer. And, um, and the whole idea of paying to publish is obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, it's it's uh, it's one of those things where I, f I feel like if you have the means to pay Rolling Stone magazine two thousand um, dollars for the possibility of being published, you might as well start your own thing. Or um, a lot of people are going on Substack now. Um, are, are you familiar with Substack? What are your thoughts yeah, on, on that? What do you think about uh, Substack? I'm pro Substack. Uh, <laughs> I think there is a problem with um getting access to uh commentators who have be been exiled from the left-wing 
mainstream media. You know, like Andrew Sullivan has a newsletter. I subscribe to the newsletter. I, I, I guess I haven't bitten the bullet and um, become a, a paying subscriber. It's expensive. He's expensive. And this is not a practical solution. You know, uh, Sam Harris, I do, I subscribe to Sam Harris. I do pay for that, but it doesn't cost as much. It adds up and, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to work if we need to pay separately for all the different uh, dissident voices that are out there that are not part of a larger publication or web page or a subscription service that would include uh, a, a number of different voices. Mm -hmm. And I think there is increasingly a need for that because uh, because the mainstream media has become so uh, monolithic in its opinions. And, you know, you have to really go out there and, and look for alternative viewpoints on anything from transgenderism to the coronavirus. So, you know, a, a, a website like Quillette is welcome. And I often read that. Um, but I, I'm wondering if something a little more organized might be required. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm finding that, uh, especially with um, with social media, where you know all of the uh, the changes or all of the exiling uh, exiles that that have happened recently on on Twitter, on Facebook, and you have I know a lot of people saying, "Oh, well, go go follow me over here, go follow me over there," and it's almost like. Um, my goal is to get my stuff out to as many people as possible, as many interested people as possible. Uh, and I feel like sometimes I think like, am I, am I diluting, um, you know, or, or basically holding back my chances of, of uh, getting my stuff out there if I'm kind of talking to a tribe of 20 people, you know, on some of these platforms? Well, the truth is that, that these uh, tech giants do have huge amounts of power and most people, if they can't find you on YouTube are just going to listen to something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've even found that. I don't, I don't know if you follow um, Joe Rogan, but um, Joe Rogan is a hugely successful podcaster. Mm -hmm. uh, when he was on YouTube, I used to see his stuff all the time and his videos uh, of his podcast of his three to four hour long podcast would have, you know, millions of views. And now uh, he signed a deal with Spotify, I guess, to, release stuff exclusively through them. And here I was, I was, you know, an avid listener and I found myself not seeing his stuff as much or even seeking it out. It's sort of, okay, that's no longer there. It's no longer easy. It's, it's no longer just put right in front of me. So it's kind of like, uh, I'm not even consciously saying I'm not going to put the work in to go seek it out. It's just not there for me. Oh yeah. That's one of the things that these platforms are very good at. It's shoving up in your face new things to watch they remind you of these people that you've been following and if they're not there anymore you just don't remember them right um so you you navigate you know two worlds of journalism and then also um fiction and uh are there similarities with um what's happening in in fiction nowadays is it harder is it easier is the market better for writers is it is it worse 
I think in, I am in a pretty fortunate position because um, I've been with the same publisher for many years uh, and they do pretty much back me up. Uh, not always with great pleasure. <laughs> I, I, I make my uh, UK editor especially nervous. But I haven't been told I simply can't publish something. I've been asked to, which is not the same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. the, what, what concerns me is first off the larger environment, which makes editors anxious. Um, but also, you know, if if I were younger and and I were publishing a a first novel, I'd probably do as I was told. I would be very anxious to get my book out. And the section in my last novel that uh, my editor badly wanted to be excised uh, would have gone in the bin. You know, I, I, I would have I wanted to please and, uh, and not realize that I had the power that's one of the things that you, are, it takes a long time to realize as a writer that you're, you ha, you're the final arbiter of your work and editors can make suggestions, but you don't have to do what they tell you to. And that takes a long time to internalize. Um, and so far, you know, I haven't been full on canceled. So I'm considering some of the things that I, I have published, I guess that also makes me extremely lucky. I sometimes get a little superstitious <laughs> about even talking about it um, and patting myself on the back for getting away with, you know, for example, opposing uh, coronavirus lockdowns. Um, I, I never know though what column I write or what line will be flagged up in a novel uh, that will be my undoing. And I think that's, that's the atmosphere in which we're all writing now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very strange too, because I, I posted this uh, the other day on, on Twitter where I remember a time where people used to be fired for not doing their job well, as opposed to uh, basically uh, getting fired because a social media mob came for them where, you know, uh, you could, you could have a, you know, a personal opinion about any manner um, of things. Uh, and then you could have a piece of work that has nothing to do with those opinions whatsoever. But the fact that you hold those, you know, heterodox opinions, people don't want you to even be able to write or to put something out that is nothing to do with that. And I, I guess an, an example that would be like, uh, like JK Rowling, the idea that because JK Rowling happens to have um, a certain opinion about, I, I guess, transgenderism, that somehow, you know, she, she should no longer be able to write anything, um, you know, wh whether it be stuff having to do with, I mean, with witches and, and the like. Well, yeah, I've written a lot about this issue. I mean, this, uh, it didn't used to be the case that we gave a toss what the political opinions were or much even the you know the sexual behavior 
uh, or of our our favorite novelists or our you know our favorite film directors and i'm still like that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know i care about watching a good film and and reading a decent book and i really don't care how malevolent the person is who created it uh and i'm able to separate those things out yeah i can see making a modest case for oh you know i don't I don't want to support uh, financially someone whom I find morally reprehensible. And therefore I don't, uh, I don't want to buy that person's book. I want to, I don't want to buy Woody Allen's memoir because I don't want him. I don't want someone who, who I believe to be a child molester, very weak evidence there. I don't. Okay, fine. I don't, you know, so, so I can see how you wouldn't want to buy his book if, if that's the way you feel about it, but, but then don't. Mm-hmm. The, the, the real issue is, do we allow the middlemen to make that decision for us? So, you know, you, I mean, I'm sure you remember that story with Hachette and the staff, uh, uh, kind of mid and low level staff, uh, objected ferociously to the idea of publishing Woody Allen's memoir and Hachette backed down and, and broke the contract. Mm. Um, and fortunately it was picked up by another press which made a, a, tiny, a tidy sum off of it too and good for them. Um, they should be rewarded for their courage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I, I do, I, I don't want um, publishers, film financers, whoever, um, to make the decision for me that they're going to boycott. They're going to buy boycott for me and not allow me to make, decide whether I, I want to purchase that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the focus shifts from, you know, the work itself to, whatever controversy surrounds the work. So a, a, an example that, that I have in, in Brooklyn, uh, I'm, I'm on the mailing list for a, a restaurant that my wife and I used to, we used to eat at a lot. And um, they sent out an email during the Black Lives Matter protest saying, we are working hard to have a more equitable environment. We support Black Lives Matter. Et cetera, et cetera. Just all, all this boilerplate that you would expect from, um, I guess, a business at that time looking to show support for for this cause. And nowhere in there did they talk about the food. And the last time that my wife and I had ate there, we had a big problem with the amount of salt in the food. Mm. Now you, you could talk about George Floyd all you want. That has nothing to do with how much salt you're putting in the food and whether or not I'm going to come back there. Uh, before you get into activism, like really, why don't you just focus on your trade and make sure that that's the best that it could actually be before, you know, trying to flavor it with, I guess that's where I would put it, flavor it with all this, uh, um, you know, PC stuff. Yeah, I, uh, I just find in general that for my taste, we're way too concerned right now with goodness yeah 
right? And you know what? I grew up in a religious family, also a very political family. You know, it was a it was liberal Presbyterianism, not you know Mormonism or something. And to me, it 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 makes me feel rebellious. And I still feel that way. It's like there's more to life than following the rules or getting your head padded or, you know, being nice or promoting the right candidate. I, I, I like concerning myself with things that are outside of heaven and hell and mm-hmm. I don't understand why everyone seems to have been swallowed up by this giant moralism. And most importantly, I think the arts are suffering from this because we seem to have completely lost uh, sight of the fact that the arts are not for the pursuit of moral purposes. That first off, they're, they're a luxury, they're a frivolity, they're a, an icing on on the cake and they're not necessary okay that's one of the nicest things about them they're that it's we could conceivably get through our animal lives with no arts whatsoever nobody needs paintings really (laughs) nobody needs movies it may seem that way it means seems like that we're addicted to netflix but actually we would survive without them but i don't want it and um and, you know, the people talk about what art is for. The truth is there is no answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the arts are for whatever the artist decides this particular creation is for. There is no pat, you know, a, assignment to an artistic product that it has to fulfill certain things. It just has to be good in its own terms. And that may just mean that it's funny. Right. which is some of the stuff you've done. And you can add a little bit of political content as you have done. And I found some of your We The Internet TV stuff hilarious. Thank you. Um, but its primary purpose is to be funny mm-hmm. and, and then secondarily to get you to laugh at certain hypocrisies and liberal pieties. Yeah. But... Uh, this whole idea that somehow when you write a book or whatever, that it, it, it has to be promoting um, virtue. It's a, it's repellent to me. Yeah. And and that's, it's repellent to me, not just as somebody who writes books, but also who reads them and who, who watches films. And I don't want to be lectured to, um, I don't, I don't want to have uh, environmentalism, for example, shoved down my throat. I tend to shy away from, you know, sci-fi books about climate change. And it's just that it's too obvious what they're for. And it's too, you know, it's, it feels too pointed and and I don't have an appetite for that. Yeah. 2020 was a fantastic year 
for material, I think, especially um, getting to see a side of people that, um, for me at least, people in my neighborhood, people in my, in my co-op um, that was hidden for a little while. So I did a podcast uh, a few weeks back and uh, the host was a, uh, very much an anti-Trump anti-Trump guy, and, and he lived in, uh, in East Tennessee. So he, it was kind of odd for him to be anti-Trump in East Tennessee. And he had all these stories about, you know, just all these awful Trump supporters that, you know, live around him. And, um, you know, he thought, I, I guess, that I would be sort of an ally in that. And I had to explain to him, like, no, I mean, I'm in Brooklyn. So all the pieces of shit that I have to deal with are all Biden-Harris supporters. Like, all the people who have, uh, who have made my life a living hell in the year 2020, when it came time uh, on election day, had the, you know, the Biden-Harris, uh, you know, t-shirt on, they had the mask that said Biden-Harris. And it was such a, it, it was such an outward expression of tribalism and saying, look, I don't have to actually be a good person, but I, I'm wearing what a good person will wear. Um, and I find it hilarious because I, you know, uh, the sort of the, uh, uh, sort of like a symbolic element here of them wearing masks and I knowing who they actually are. Um, like uh, there's this one, there's this one guy in my building who attacked another, uh, another neighbor outside because the neighbor was uh, outside without a mask on, uh, on a bicycle in the bike lane. And this guy thought that it was his right to protect humanity to physically attack this this neighbor. There's no law that you have to wear a mask outside in New York. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I'm and I'm 100% with you on that. Uh, but this dude thought, you know, I mean, he was basically um, he made himself he deputized himself, you know. And the man who he attacked was was black. He was a a white man who attacked a black neighbor. And I did a little snooping on the attacker's Facebook page. And holy shit, uh, all Black Lives Matter posts. I am uh, looking at my, you know, he is um, uh, reflecting on his own whiteness and his own privilege and all that. And I'm like, but you just, you just beat up a black guy. And here you are, you know, you, you're able to live in these two worlds where online you're, man, you're a real woke, like ally, you know, white ally. But then in the streets, you're a maniac who will, you know, take your fist to a, <laughs> to another human being because they're not wearing a mask. Well, <laughs> you know, the Trump era was, uh, it, it put liberal self-righteousness on steroids and it's gonna be interesting with him out of the White House now, um, how they live without him. Uh, right now, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, all that talk of unity. Right. You know, which has its refreshing side. I, I, I hope there's some reality to it and it's not just rhetoric. Um, but, you know, the problem with being in power is that, you know, there's nobody to complain about. And, and it will be interesting to see whether the the Biden administration remains united. My worry is that all the signals are so far 
that Biden will remain united by remaining very, very left, leftward in his policies. Because the people who are going to give him grief, uh, if, if, if any, are going to be from the progressive wing of the party who are not happy that he's not following all these, uh, all these different rubrics. Mm-hmm. And so far he is. I mean, the appointment of the cabinet was, it was almost, uh, you know, an Excel spreadsheet of the demographic, the ethnic breakdown of the United States. They were clearly just box ticking their way down the list. You know, I'm hopeful that most of those people are relatively well qualified for their jobs. So I'm, and I'm not going to get too upset about it, but I don't like the theater. And, and I didn't like the fact that both the media and other people in the administration only talked about these appointments in terms of whether they were women or whether they were Hispanic. And it, it, that's all, you, all that was ever said about these people mm-hmm. in a way that made it clear that that is what qualified them for the position. You know, I hope not, but I just find this whole way of talking about people and thinking about people offensive. Occasionally, I like to get offended myself. (laughs) It's kind of fun. I can see what they get out of it. Um, It's, it's kind of a kick. And I, I, I just find it such a reductive way to discuss people all the time. So I'm a little, I'm a little anxious so far about how, how Biden is proceeding. It was, we wondered at the beginning, you know, whether he'd be a centrist or whether he'd be able to control his left flank. And so far, it seems to me that his left flank is controlling him. Mm-hmm. Um, that he's being either that or he's so keen to placate that side of the party that they might as well be controlling him. There, um... I, it was very unhappy with that announcement about. Um, about how you should be able to use, you know, whatever changing rooms you want, depending on your gender identity, and um, and most of all the, the the reference to school sports. I mean, yeah, I that, was gonna, that I was gonna is that. catastrophic for women's sports, mm-hmm. and you know, conceivably the end of women's sports in the United States. And I was that just carelessness. I mean, what do you think? Why am I, I not thinking, or is this actually his position? Um, I don't think I. I can't imagine he ever gave this any thought um, four years ago. You know, I, I think that it, it's something that came a that came about where it's sort of a flavor of the month sort of thing, and now, and now that's the position. But it's interesting with with these new executive orders that have been made, where you start doing the sort of the calculus of, I guess, on the intersectional scale, who's getting fucked over here. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, okay, the uh, when it comes to the high school girls sports, we're going to uplift trans, you know, trans athletes to the detriment of the girl athletes. Um, even with the, um, I saw with the uh, the pipeline that that uh, that they're getting rid of. It's sort of okay. The environmentalists are happy 
but apparently there are quite a few indigenous tribes on which the pipeline would run who are now going to be out of a lot of money. Mm. And it's like, you just, okay, so which is the good thing to do? But uh, yeah, the, the, the track thing, uh, I made a joke about it. I said, I said in, in order to um, even the playing field, uh, the girl athletes should have to run with uh, strap-on dildos uh, when competing against trans athletes. So, you know, make sure everybody is, uh, is equipped and, you know, whatever drag is there. So I think Lionel just signed off. She's like, I'm no longer in this conversation anymore. <laughs> but it's yeah, weird. It I is weird. I'm going to leave the dildo thing alone. Thank you. Well, you know, with a, with a lot of this stuff, I mean, you've gotten in, uh, gotten in trouble as far as, you know, who's allowed to write what and about and about whom and what characters you're allowed to write and and all that stuff. And it it just seems like uh, I don't know if that if that's going to end. What do you think? I don't know. You know, I've I've uh, spoken and written a lot about this uh, cultural appropriation nonsense, and um, it's obvious that in fiction it's simply unworkable. Uh, that you can't write about people different from yourself, then all you write is autobiography. And um, I don't want to write autobiogra autobiography. I don't think I'm interesting enough. So I need to avail myself of other people. And, and I also think that there's a fundamental mis conception in the whole argument as it applies to fiction. Um, if I create a black character, I have not, I, I, I don't have to report to actual black people. They don't own, you know, the black community out there does not own my character. It's my character. It's a it's a person who doesn't exist. It is a figment of my imagination and completely within my control and answerable only to me. It, it is not an ambassador for a category of people. And I mean, after all, nobody gives me grief about creating uh, people who are very temperamentally different from me who are white. They're my characters. They can be as I like. Um, so designating a character with a different skin color or as a man or with a different sexual inclinations, it doesn't change the rules. My characters are my creations. I control what they do. I control what they are. I can even kill them if I want. <laughs> <laughs> and I can subject them to all kinds of tortures beforehand. I mean, right. it's really fun being a fiction writer. It's a, it's, it's a, it, it, an experience of, of being all powerful, even monomaniacal. Yeah. Um, and, and so I reject out of hand that, uh, that I, there are only certain things I can allow my theoretical black character to do. My, that character can do anything I decide that character can do. Um, and I don't mean that there's not such a thing as a stereotype and that it, sure you can, you can criticize writers, writers for using stereotypes. It's, a, it's usually just a kind of laziness. So it's a way of taking the first idea, the first image that comes to mind and, 
and not challenging yourself to do something more interesting. But, you know, we've criticized writers for writing stereotypes forever. I mean, that, you know, that's standard lit crit. So mm -hmm. fine. But uh, this, uh, the cultural appropriation thing is a whole new level. And so is uh, the attendant uh, business of having uh, sensitivity readers, which is mostly hit young adult fiction, but is increasingly making inroads in uh, mainstream literature. With with sensitivity and readers, it's just this misunderstanding. Yeah, do they well, do they're are, are they sensitive? I wonder, like, are sensitivity readers are they themselves sensitive, or do or are are they you know sort of and what would be empathic where they well, one, of the, one of the things that's wrong with the whole idea is <laughs> that a sensitivity reader assumes the position of ambassador right. of a group of people and they're self-nominated ambassadors. They don't, um, their only qualification is belonging to that group. Mm -hmm. It would be as if I could just be an advocate for all of women. Well, that's ludicrous, you know? Um, so, you know, maybe you're disabled, but then you're supposed to read a manuscript on behalf of all disabled people and whether or not all disabled people will find something offensive or trite or, you know, in some way objectionable. And it, it gets, it's the same paradigm that I don't, I simply don't subscribe to, and I, I, and I, and I can't write like that. I mean, every once in a while I'll edit out a line because I decide, okay, it's pushing something or it's going to be misinterpreted by some people, or, you know, I think that's funny, but probably a lot of other people don't, you know, I, I don't, I try not to be needlessly provocative unless I'm, you know, it's, it's useful to the book, or it's really funny. I don't ever set out to offend on purpose. I, I think that would be a peculiar uh, commercial strategy, if nothing else, you know? Right. Um, especially since people who are offended by books have historically not bought or read them. So you know, I, I was just this, about, to, I was just really about to ask that. Yeah, I was just about to ask that, you know, it, it's sort of like, um, yeah, the amount of people who come out against a book being published, it's like, how can any of you even know what's in the book? I mean, it's sort of, uh, what was it? Oh, they've um, never read the book. Yeah. People who object to books never read books. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a rule. I mean, the people who wanted to get rid of Salman Rushdie never read the Satanic Verses, never even read the passages out of context that were supposed to be so horrible. But you know, there's a difference between um, steering clear of any kind of deliberate offense and steering clear of risk. And I do take risks. I mean, that the section that uh, one editor badly wanted to be taken out of in my last novel, The Motion of the Body Through Space, is it's deliberately walking on the wild side, it's definitely taking a risk. 
because it's about you know it's a it's a it has a character in it who is an incompetent diversity hire from oh she's a second generation Nigerian she's American she's very American as a matter of fact but you're not that's that's probably almost the definition of the kind of character you're not supposed to write um, but that's that's what you ask for when the only um, the only standard uh, in hiring someone is that they fulfill your diversity requirements. If that's it, then if that's if then you're inevitably going to occasionally hire someone who isn't up to the job. And uh, it's funny, I um, I came across a Glenn Lowry podcast recently. Uh, I don't know have you have you watched him much? Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Glenn Show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the two black guys at Blogging Heads TV, he and uh, yeah. John McCord. Great, I'm a big yeah. fan. I'm going to go on the record now, and I'm a big fan of Blogging Heads TV. And I've seen a lot of those guys' um, yeah. conversations. But I, I made a note of the fact that uh, Glenn said that he, there must be huge numbers of people out there of uh, white guys who are steaming in resentment over diversity hires and diversity promotions. And then this is the resentment that dare not speak its name because you really, you cannot say anything. And yet, you know, that's what happens with affirmative action is that people are hired or promoted for the wrong reasons, not because they're good at their jobs. And so I, I have a plot where my, one of my main characters is uh, passed over for a, a promotion and, and suddenly his boss is less than half his age and has no experience in, uh, uh, in his area. He's a second in command of the uh, Albany, New York Department of Transportation. This woman knows nothing about transportation. She got a degree in gender studies or something. She's therefore quite reasonably insecure about whether she can do the job. And you know, some people respond to insecurity with aggression. You know, that's, a, that's quite commonplace. So she's a nightmare to work for. I concede that including this backstory in the book was dangerous and I was tempting fate a bit and I have got it in the neck from a few reviews which I haven't read I've been told about <laughs> uh, for, for, for this particular creation and most people most writers right now would not have created that character most white writers it, it just would have seemed too perilous and I, and I don't, I don't feel apologetic about it. Actually, the character herself is, is a good character. You know, mm -hmm. She's a minor character, but she's a good character. You know, and so I don't, and, 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 and that section of the book is actually quite funny. So I never regret publishing anything that's funny. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, you know, I, I've asked this question to, to a number of people before when it comes to 
when it comes to comedy, when it comes to film, when it comes to books, it's like, what are you after when you open up a book? Because I know what I'm after. I'm after the danger, as you describe it. I'm, I'm after reading something that is going to make me uh, not regret, you know, reading 300 pages, spending the time, taking, you know, the time when I could be doing all manner of, of, uh, of other things, wasting time, wasting time doing uh, everything else. I, I haven't read William Faulkner in a little while, but every single time that I've opened up his work, I describe it as I feel like I'm reading it through a peephole and I'm being shown something I'm not supposed to see. Hmm. And nicely put, yeah. And I need to, and, and I, I can't read his stuff back to back to back. I, 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 need, I need a break from him. And that's what I want from literature. And, if you, and it seems like, as you described, you know, people uh, being expected to, to just write from their own experience. It's like, look, I have mirrors in my apartment. I don't need to be looking at myself all day. You know, I want to, I want to look at, I want, I want to be brought into a world that I don't, that I don't know, but yet is having an impact on me on a, on a, an uncanny impact on me. Hmm. Um, and I think, and, and you've definitely done that. I, uh, the first book of yours that I read was the, the mandibles. There are so many different characters there that I was blown away by just how, how rich all of them were and how I'm like, I met this person before. I had met this person before. How do you go about, you know, exploring these people? Do you take figments from people that that you do that you know? Um, do you make stuff up from whole cloth? Bit of both. Mm -hmm. It's a little mysterious. I mean, I don't I don't mean to be arty about it, but uh, yeah. you start with some what often feel like rather arbitrary decisions. They feel arbitrary because they they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, put together what starts out as a kind of stick figure. It reminds me a little of sculpture. You, um, when you do figure sculpture, you can build it on a wire frame. And so that's really how you start out with, it's just a crude wire frame. It doesn't even completely look like a person. And then little by little, you start adding bits of clay. It's a, it's a process that, you know, the, the, the person becomes real to the reader as, the, as, as the character also becomes real to the writer. You, you, the re when you're writing, you're also reading your own work. You're your first reader. And so it's a, it's a process of talking yourself into uh, an illusion. At a certain point, it, it works. And these people suddenly seem to have dimension and, and quirks and there's certain things you can't get them to do anymore because they wouldn't do that. Mm. Or by turns, you can also make them do something that they wouldn't do. And that means something, which is also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a little uh, anxiety producing to begin with because uh, characters at the very start do can't, can feel a little artificial and, fake and like who are you kidding <laughs> <laughs> this is just a few words and um and you have just have to have faith in the project and mm -hmm. carry on and if the book works then those people will start to be companions not just uh stick figures that you control <laughs>
when my when my wife was was pregnant, I I started reading. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin, and I made it about fifty pages in uh, <laughs> while my son was unborn, um, and I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to put this down just for a little bit. I think I'm a little, I think I'm I'm growing a little soft, um, and I'm I'm gonna be picking that up at uh at some point in the. Uh, in the future, before he goes to high school, I think I need to read it. Um, so I have, I have, I have a little bit of, uh, a little bit of time there, with with writing, uh, you know, books like that, uh, stories like that that are deal with the controversy. Uh, do you get contacted like anytime something awful happens uh, that somehow that might you know intersect with themes in your books and people want to want to talk to you about that? Um. I mean, for many years, I was contacted every time there was a big school shooting. Uh, there was a point at which I had to formally retire from passing comment on school shootings. I had run out of things to say. Um, one of the things that I said repeatedly was that uh, we reward these occasions with too much attention on the news, and that's why we keep getting more of them. So I was participating in the very, the very process that I was decrying. So that didn't make any sense. So I don't do that anymore. One of the things I like about being a fiction writer is I keep getting to change my subject matter. So I don't like getting stuck in the old stuff. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me right now is that I'm getting more, um, more people coming to me wanting to talk about the mandibles. And uh, for those of your listeners who don't know the book, it's um, set in uh, 2029 and it's about the economic collapse of the United States. Expressly, it's about the fact that the, the president defaults on the national debt and the value of the dollar plummets. Things don't go well. <laughs> um, and to write this book, I did. I I, I read a fair stack of books on economics. It's a, it's expressly an economic dystopia. And, and I just want I just want to say too, like a lot of it takes place kind of in my neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. So, so when I'm walking around Brooklyn Heights and you know I'm looking around while I was reading that, I'm like, oh, things can go bad really quick, especially around here. But I think the reason that I'm getting more, you know, more people wanting to talk about that book in the, in particular is because it's so horrifyingly germane to the current economic circumstances. Uh, you know, adding. Tr trillions and trillions onto the US national debt. The same thing's happening over here in the UK. Uh, it was, you know, it was looking dire anyway in, in terms of sovereign debt because we just have a serious structural demographic problem. Um, huge pending liabilities for, uh, you know, in the US social security and Medicare. Um, and an aging, an aging population. And therefore we have it baked in that uh, the amount that the government spends is gonna keep going up. But the coronavirus has, has sped up that process to a dizzying degree and it's not over. 
um, right. because the pandemic is not over and we're still doing lockdowns and they still have people, huge proportion of the workforce on furlough in the UK. It's a little unnerving, you know, how, how much higher can you build that precarious pile of debt without everything falling apart? I mean, to what degree do we believe that, that the national debt is ever going to be paid back? You know, I, I don't see, I don't see it. I don't, we, uh, certainly in the UK, we're hearing all the time about how, oh, you know, this debt that we're piling up is going to, it's going to mean that this is going to have to be repaid by our children and grandchildren. No, they're not. They're not going to repay it. It's impossible. It's too much money, right? So what's going to happen? And I figure it's either runaway inflation, or at a certain point, there's just going to be a, you know, a drawing the line and saying, look, there's, this is absurd. We have vast amounts of debt all over the place in every country. It's never going to be paid back. Let's call time. That's not going to be pretty either. But either way, I just, I don't, I don't buy into the, you know, the classic uh, magic money tree, modern monetary theory, whereby you can invent infinite amounts of currency from nothing and suffer no consequences. It's, yeah. it's just, it's, that's not true of any product or substance in the world that you produce infinite amounts of it and it remains valuable. No, yeah, if, I'm, I'm going to invest in a wheelbarrow so I could, uh, you know, lug all my uh, $20 bills to the supermarket to pay for, for a piece of bread. Well, you know, whatever's going on in the stock market, to me, that's, a, that's an inflationary bubble. Those companies are not worth that kind of money. And that's, to, from my perspective, that's, that's where the inflation is gone. That's where the quantitative easing money has gone. And uh, the thing with all Ponzi schemes is you can never tell when they're going to fall apart. You can never tell when, but you can be sure that they will. I just, I just saw, came across this new initiative called New York Forever. Have you heard about that? No. Uh, so, so basically, a, um, a number of celebrities who, you know, goes without saying, are very wealthy, um, are asking people to pledge to stay in New York. Hmm. So it looks like a lot of the people who are asking others to stay in New York have not been staying in New York for, you know, the past, say, year. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been, I think, acting very uh, rationally, where if I owned a home in the Hamptons, I would probably be there with my family waiting out this plague. Um, and it's, uh, it's very weird. I don't know who the audience is that they're talking to, you know, asking people to stay, um, being in New York and just seeing mostly aimed at wealthy people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I imagine that's who the, cares uh, if the poor people stay. Yeah. And, and for me, it, this hits, this hits home because I'm a lifelong New Yorker and I'm getting out. I you am, are. Yeah. I am getting out. I am going, Where are you going, 
I'm going to the outskirts of New Jersey. Um, um, and uh, we are getting a home. We just had a, uh, an offer accepted and it's four bedrooms and two bathrooms and property and all that. And what we have a mutual friend, Jessamine, who's like, I gotta, yeah. I gotta make you guys stay. You can't go, you can't, you can't leave us. But, uh, yeah, but you I remember know, talking to Jessamine this summer and she was very upset yeah. about how many of her friends were leaving. Yeah. And for, for, for us, it, you know, I, I see some of this New York forever stay. And I'm like, look, I'm in a, I'm in a one bedroom apartment with my wife and, and our baby. And all the places that we love are either closed down or they have been crippled by government policy and they're hurting. And even the, uh, the energy of New York is, I can't, I can't explain it. Every single time I go out and like we talked, uh, like you said before, there's no law saying you need to wear a mask outside. And why would you? Why would you wear a mask outside? Especially if you're walking on an empty street. When I'm walking with my, with our baby, our, um, you know, strolling around our neighborhood, trying to take in some oxygen, the looks I get from people, uh, you know, wearing the mask, you know, scowling at me under their, you know, you can see like their lips purse in a, in a weird mm -hmm. shape. And the, I, I just, I don't feel, I feel unease every single time I go out. I feel like, is this going to be a fight? Even, 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 even if it's not a fist fight, is it going to be an argument? Am I going to have to, you know, uh, you know, tell this guy off. And it's just like, I am, it's like New York, you're, you're basically telling me you don't want me here. And I'm sorry, but a, uh, uh, you know, celebrities hanging out uh, in the Hamptons aren't, it doesn't, they're not going to get me to stay here. It doesn't make sense for me to stay. Um, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. You and I won't be having a drink this summer. <laughs> Oh, I, uh, I, I could drive. I am, I could I'm drive. very worried about both New York and London. I, yeah. I, I would commonly have counted myself very fortunate to have a place, modest little places, yes, but a, a, a real estate foothold in both cities. Uh, you know, renowned as a couple of the best, most wonderful cities in the world. And suddenly, suddenly we have, we own real estate in two of the most depressing cities in the world. Yeah. You know, the most hollowed out cities in the world. And there's, there's really very little purpose to being in New York right now. I mean, what is it mm -hmm. aside from expensive? What does it offer you? And we're looking ahead to the future too. And, uh, we wanted to stay in our neighborhood in particular because of, we were told about how great the public school system was. And ah. we're, two, we're two parents, yeah, we're two parents who really care about the future of our children. And then we have a mayor who decides that the goal is equity, whatever the hell that means. So they're looking to get rid of magnet programs. They're looking to get rid of selective high schools. They're looking to get rid of merit and I'm a kid, I'm a, I'm a guy who grew up in the public school system in Queens. I went to public, public school from pre-K all the way to the fifth grade, did magnet school in the sixth grade, uh, public middle school in, in Little Neck. Then I, I went to uh, private school, uh, Catholic school for, uh, for high school. Um, and you know, I was so fortunate to, 
to have grown up when I did, when, when, you know, kids with a, with some talent and, you know, some acumen were able to uh, go into programs that were, you know, that would really, you know, foster that. And uh, I, I have no idea where their minds are right now um, when it comes to education in New York City. No idea. Well, I, I read about the fact that they are eliminating selective high schools. I guess they're going to keep the really top ones and then all the other ones is going to be a lottery system. And it's a big mistake. Yeah. Um, and I, I hadn't thought of it this way, but uh, you're right for parents who want to keep their kids in the public school system. It's just another reason to leave New York. Yeah. Do you, um, uh, do high schools read any of your books? Do you, do you, uh, do you know about that? Like if, uh, if any schools I know do? that, uh, we need to talk about Kevin has been pretty widely read in high schools. It's a, it's a good book for high schoolers. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, it's about high schoolers. Um, and, and I, I've, I've got a lot of uh, good feedback from teenagers on that book. That's great. They read it a little differently. Oh, Kevin sure. A little more sympathetic with Kevin. <laughs> 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 That's great. This episode is the first time I'm doing um, a new segment. So um, I have a locals community, which are uh, subscribers. And I asked them, uh, I told them that you were going to be on the podcast, and a couple of questions came in. So uh, what I'd like to do is, um, you know, offer you those questions, maybe we talk for just a little bit, uh, a little bit longer. Uh, for those of you who are interested in hearing the uh, rest of this conversation, please head over to theluperez.locals.com. Dot com and please check out all of Lionel's work. Uh, she's fantastic, and I think you'll really enjoy it. <laughs> 